We're reading from Romans chapter 8 today. If you have a copy of God's Word of one kind or another, turn to Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of your sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Did you know that dead snakes can bite? In one year, five of the 35 people who were admitted to a Phoenix hospital for snake bite had been bitten by dead snakes. One 21-year-old man, for example, was bitten on the hand by the severed head of a rattlesnake, and although he lived to tell about it, he did lose the finger. I didn't know, or I didn't remember, that dead snakes can bite. (laughs) Did you know that although the old, sin-loving, pre-Christian self was crucified with Christ that the old sinful nature can still bite. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says that 
the old self, our pre-Christian self, was crucified with Christ. And Romans 8, as we have seen in the last few looks at this magnificent chapter, says that a whole new you and me live by the power of the Holy Spirit. The old is gone, the new has come. A massive, irreversible shift has taken place in the lives of Christians. Christ's life has become yours, just as Christ's death counted as yours. And yet, we read in verse 13 of Romans 8, this sober warning, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. What's going on here? What's going on here is that dead snakes can bite. Let's back up to verse 12 of Romans 8. Therefore, brothers, in view of everything the Apostle Paul has been saying about new life in Christ and how you and I are under new management, no longer obligated to obey the old master sin, but now living under the gracious lordship of a new master, Jesus Christ, empowered by his indwelling Holy Spirit, so that the righteous requirement of God's law is completely fulfilled in us, who no longer live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Therefore, we have an obligation. The Bible is so balanced where we can sometimes be imbalanced. Um, some of us emphasize the therefore there is now no condemnation in verse 1 and forget that in verse 12 we therefore we have an obligation. On the other hand, some of us emphasize so much the obligation that we forget God's amazing free grace. Some of us love it that the Apostle Paul wrote in another letter, Ephesians, it is by grace you've been saved, not by works, and forget that in the very next line he says, you were created to do good works. And on the other hand, others of us sometimes so emphasize the works that we sort of kind of imagine that we can work our way to heaven, earn God's favor by the good deeds that we do, and forget that salvation can only be received as a free gift. We, we can be imbalanced, but the Bible is balanced. Romans 8 is balanced. Romans as a whole is balanced. Back in chapter 6, as we've seen, Paul could write, we died to sin. Categorical. When Christ died on the cross, it counted as if, not as if, as your death to the penalty and eventually to the very presence of sin. You died. But then in a couple verses, Paul goes on to say, so count yourselves dead to sin. Don't let it reign over you. Balance. Here in Romans 8, he writes, there is no condemnation. The spirit of life has made it possible, not only made it possible, made it inevitable eventually that all of us who trust the Savior will inevitably be perfected into the image of Christ, and that goes on to say, we have an obligation. 
We have an obligation. But not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Listen, you do not owe your old sin-loving nature anything, not even a decent burial. You don't have to listen to it, much less obey it. For, verse 13 again, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. By living according to the sinful nature, the apostle does not mean falling into sin now and then. He's already said in chapter 7 that the normal Christian life includes sometimes striving but failing to please God and feeling wretched about it. He admits that he himself sometimes slips and falls. But as an old Chinese proverb puts it, you don't drown by falling in the water. You drown by staying there. And you don't die by falling into temptation as long as you reach up to the strong hand of the Savior who will pull you out. You die if you stay there. Paul had no intention of staying there. He knew that he could sometimes slip and fail and fall and feel wretched about it, as all Christians do on occasion. But he did not expect to go to hell. And that's what he means, basically, almost certainly, when he says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Death, spiritual death. He's already explained earlier in the chapter what he means by walking according to or living according to the flesh or the sinful nature. He used the expression back in verse 4, contrasting those who live according to the sinful nature with those who live according to the Spirit. Two kinds of people, non-Christians and Christians. That, that, that much is clear. Then in verse 5, he talks about the, the mindset of those who live according to the sinful nature. They have their desires, their will, their passions all oriented toward the flesh and what it desires and goes on in verse 6 of this chapter to say that that mindset is death. And in verse 8 he's talking about the same group. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. He's not talking about Christians here. To live according to the sinful nature, then, is the old, dead-in-sin kind of life from which Christ has delivered us. So why, then, does Paul write to Christians and warn them not to live according to the sinful nature, or they'll die? He's... He's clearly writing to Christians. In verse 12, he opens this paragraph by addressing them as brothers. A few verses later, verse 16, he says, you're God's children. You're in the family of God. New life in Christ. How, how, how then does he write to Christians, Christ followers, those who have been adopted and born again and say, if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. Well, one reason that Paul writes this way is he doesn't want any of us to presume 
on God's grace. As if holiness of life doesn't matter. As evidence that grace has really taken root in our hearts. New Testament warnings addressed to believers prompt some sober self-examination so that we ask ourselves, is my profession the real deal? Am I persevering in the faith? Or am I, to be honest, living according to the sinful nature which leads to eternal death? You see, Paul could write like the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, which we studied last year, can write to a congregation, most of which he knows are brothers, children of God, as he calls us in this paragraph, and yet realize that some might prove to not be genuine. So that's one reason that Paul might write to a Christian congregation and warn them, even though Christ died for them, even though they're trusting in Christ, most of them, don't live according to the sinful nature or, or you'll die. That's one reason. And another reason that he might write this way to a Christian congregation is because dead snakes can bite. Yes, that sinful nature was crucified with Christ. Yes, he says in his letter to the Galatian Christians that you who belong to Christ have crucified. Perfect tense. It's done. Accomplished. You've crucified the sinful nature. Yes, all, all that is true. But what theologians call remaining sin, like the automatic reflex of a severed snake's head, can still bite you. So make sure it's dead. Kill it. Verse 13, second half of the verse. If you put to death the misdeeds of the body. The, the body itself is not sinful, but it does become an instrument of sin. If you put to death the misdeeds of the body, the old sin-loving self, you'll live. I thought about bringing a, an object lesson that would, well, the kids would like it anyway. We have back at our house a snake, a rubber snake. And we have a number of swords. And I thought about bringing the rubber snake and one of the swords and um, letting some of the kids whack at it. You know, I mean, there would be an upside to this. The kids would love it and would be saying, I wonder what Pastor Ken's going to do next week. But then I thought, might get violent. <laughs> well, you know, there is, there is a kind of violence in the Christian life. A biblical counselor writes, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred of sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. Here's another Christian counselor. 
There is a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life. A violence against all the impulses in ourselves that would make us have, make peace with our own sin and settle in with a peacetime mentality. It is a violence against all of the lust in ourselves, the enslaving desires for food or caffeine or sugar or chocolate or alcohol or pornography or money or the praise of men and the approval of others or fame. Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world kind of religion. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of your own body, you will live. Kill sin or it will kill you. Puritan theologian John Owen wrote a book entitled The Mortification of Sin. It means the putting to death of sin. The whole book, I saw an abridged version that has 169 pages. The whole book is an ex exposition of Romans 8.13. And the most memorable line in that long exposition is, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Or, somewhat shortened for our main idea this morning, kill sin, or sin will kill you. Well, how do you do that? How do you kill sin? Well, Owen wrote a long book answering that question. Lots of possible answers. In fact, a comprehensive answer includes every aspect of the Christian life. But let me, based on Owen's writing and that of other wise counselors, just give you a few of the ways in which we put this verse into practice and, and, and kill sin. The first one is, at the very least, don't feed it. Don't feed it. A U.S. Coast Guard vessel in the Canadian Arctic encountered a polar bear floating on a piece of ice, an ice floe, and this was kind of new to the crew. They got a kick out of it, and they started throwing things to the bear, um, peanut butter and chocolate and some nuts. Then they ran out of food, but the bear hadn't run out of appetite, and the bear boarded the vessel, and the men were scared. <laughs> They turned the fire hoses on the bear. The bear loved it, raised its paws to get that squirt under its arms. Now, I don't know how they finally did it, but they got the bear off of the boat and learned an important lesson about feeding polar bears. Don't feed sin. Starve it. Don't feed lust by the movies that you watch. Don't feed envy or materialism by spending a lot of time on those glitzy, glamorous catalogs that come in the mail or the sidebars on your web page. Don't feed self-pity by rehearsing wrongs done to you. And don't think that I'm just giving you a list of don'ts, <laughs> commending a joyless, rules-oriented kind of Christianity. I saw a book, the cover caught my eye, it was a man's face, and he had little post-it notes all over it. They read things like, don't smoke, have devotions, go to church. The title of the book was something like, are you tired of to-do list Christianity? I'm not trying to give you a to-do list. I'm just trying to get specific about what it means to starve sin. The sinful nature 
does not care if we deal in vague abstractions. The sinful nature starts to worry when we cut up the credit cards, cancel our cable TV contract, when we, well, you fill in the blank, some specific way in which we starve sin. The second way we kill sin is by loving Jesus. Owen has a lot to say in his book on the mortification of sin about hating our sin, taking it seriously. But then he moves into a a wonderful section of the book where he says the chief way we do this is by loving Christ more. Another old divine spoke about the expulsive power of a new affection. What he means is the chief way to force sin out of your heart is to make more room there for Christ. And that new love expels the old love of sin. So Owen and others have helped us see that the best way to hate sin is to love Jesus, gratefully recalling all he has done for us and and fearing lest we disappoint him, grieve him, betray him. My prayer for myself and for you is the words that we sang last Sunday in church. Teach me to love thee as I ought to love. One holy passion filling all my frame. So that there's no, no room for sin anymore in there because Jesus looms so large in my heart. How do you kill sin so it doesn't kill you? Well, at least don't feed it. Starve it. Love Christ. And combat it with the sword of the Spirit. Paul says, by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. It is the Spirit of God who motivates and empowers and enables us to make war against sin. We rely on His strength and on his weapons. And so, boys and girls, I actually did bring an object lesson. Left the snake at home, but I brought one of my swords. If you would like a closer look, you can come up and meet me up here on the platform after worship this morning, and I'll even let you hold this sword parents, don't worry, it's not sharp. The edges are not, ouch! (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Point is sharp, the edges are not, so your kids are not likely to get hurt, and I'll be up here with them. If they want, come and take a closer look. Do you think you could kill a snake with this? Yeah. I, I, I think so. And if you could answer that question, maybe you can answer this one, boys and girls. What does the Bible say is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Bible. You use the Spirit's weapons to kill sin. So, Dad, you're tempted to lust? Whack! Kill it! Don't make peace with it. And don't wait until it's gotten closer and closer and closer to you. Kill it! You start to feel like giving in to despair and discouragement. You quote Bible verses at it. I read where 
a missionary family in a country, a difficult country to serve the Lord. In, in, in fact, they don't even want to mention it in their prayer letters. They, uh, they tell about how they combat the temptations of sin that threaten them. Here's what they write. The law of this country says one thing. The word of God says the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Whack! Fear says, what if, fill in the blank, happens? Faith says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen and help in you. Ah, take that, sin. When worry surfaces, faith responds, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. When doubt and frustration scoff, things will never change. People will never change. You're wasting your time. Jesus looks us in the eye and responds, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Whack! I'm told that a dead rattlesnake has a biting reflex for up to an hour after it's dead. Sin's reflex lasts until the day you get to heaven. So keep your sword sharp.